Hey, you guys, it's Sharpie. I'm the guest from episode number 20. I like to travel to the edge of the known universe and peer over the edge to see what's out there. It's sort of like digging below the surface, tapping into the electromagnetic network of fungi and tree roots to try and figure out what they're talking about. Spread the word to anyone who you think may be interested in expanding their horizon and growing their universe. Thanks, guys. Tune in soon. Welcome to ATBS, the podcast, all things big and small. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick, and as always, thanks for listening. Today, Richard Hamilton rejoins me in the pod ship. Today, we're focused on the epigenetics of nutrition and how what we eat impacts our epigenome, our microbiome, our immune system, and our overall health. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Today on All Things Big and Small, the podcast, we are back with our guest, Richard Hamilton, molecular biologist and good friend. And we are going to do a deeper dive into epigenetics and nutrition as a follow-up to our epigenetic overview. So welcome, Richard. Appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you, Jeffrey. Always great to chat with you. Uh, we, We do have some good chats, that's for sure. So epigenetics and nutrition, Richard, I think this is this is a good one. I read something in the news the other day that like 40% of the American population is now clinically obese. I think we're all interested in nutrition and how do we extend our lifespan and our health span actually living a, a good quality life. So epigenetics and nutrition, what say you? Yeah, so let's just start with a, a quick review of epigenetics. Epi, Greek for above, above genetics. Genetics, your DNA sequence, which you inherit from your mom and dad, is very much like the VIN number of your car. Static, unchanging over the course of your life. It tells you the make and the model and the trim package, but not too much else. Whereas epigenetics is really more like your car's dashboard. It's a way of looking at you know, how fast you're running the thing down the road. We can look at nutrition. We can look at fitness. But there's also an odometer involved. We can see how well you're aging and what's driving that aging process. I think a lot of this epigenetic story and chromatin condensation and chromatin management comes through a study of aging that was really done in yeast. So believe it or not, yeast age, and you can study this. And a fellow who's now a professor at Harvard Medical School, David Sinclair, made the observation that there were certain chemical compounds which could cause chromatin to condense, cause chromatin to be wound up, again, into the ball of yarn, and that led to longevity. And he called the proteins that did this are called sirtuins, and then there's a whole class of compounds or sirtuin-activating compounds that 
are compounds that can be you know, present in the diet that cause sirtuins to be activated, which cause chromatin to condense. Probably the most famous of these in the mind of the public is resveratrol. Resveratrol is a compound that is found in red wine and was thought to be responsible for what some people call the French paradox, that French cuisine is still fairly rich in terms of saturated fats and refined carbohydrates, but nonetheless, they at the time, they were living longer lives than, say, the average American, and was that due to the, the red wine that they were drinking? We now know that there are lots of sirtuin-activating compounds that are found, again, largely in plants. And so we believe that plant-based diets are a very rich source of these chromatin-condensing molecules. They're largely a a class of compounds called plant polyphenol. And one of the reasons we believe that a plant-based diet is is very healthy. For the listeners who are thinking, okay, what can I do? Can you give us an idea of like five or a handful of foods that you would say – fit into the category of, you know, let's high in resveratrol, antioxidants, you know, like, oh, eat more of these five foods. Do you have that? Yeah. Well, dark leafy greens would probably be at the top of the list. Berries and other fruits. I'm a particular aficionado of blueberries. What I would encourage people to do rather than trying to say, okay, you know, it's broccoli, cauliflower, kale, and this, is when you go to the grocery store, I would encourage you to explore the diversity of the produce aisle. And when I have done this myself, you know, we all have our favorites, right? And, and so it's, it's too easy to sit there and, and just pick out the head of broccoli. Look at the diversity of stuff that's on. This is the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing about modern society is we have access to fresh fruits and vegetables year-round. And so what I try and do almost every time I shop is to sample uh, a fruit or vegetable that I haven't sampled before. Because I think diversity of diet leads to diversity of microbiome, and that leads to healthy outcome. So I think there's classes of compounds, green leafy vegetables, berries. I like brightly colored fruits. You know, a lot of these compounds are compounds that plants evolve to protect themselves from predation or from bacteria, or from fungi. But in our physiology, they often have this this sort of chromatin condensation effect. So I like to eat some red stuff, some yellow stuff, some orange stuff, as well as the dark green lacy stuff. Eat the rainbow. We've heard it before. Yeah. And I love the idea of going, you know, sampling something. I do it all the time. I go in, I, I have my list. It's fairly similar from trip to trip to the grocery store. And I love the idea of you know, oh, okay, what's that? I, I wouldn't even know what to do with that. You know, rutabaga or some different version of kale or, or what have you and bring it on home. And one of the beauties of the world we live in today, as you've said many times, you've got the, you know, sum of human knowledge at your fingertips and just do a little bit of, you know, recipe research and put it together and give it a go. Absolutely. Absolutely, right? Uh, explore the rainbow, as you said. And, uh, you know, use Google to, you know, oh, you know, here's a Chinese cucumber. Well, what's the recipe with that? Just make it fun. I've done it sometimes at the house here where the family's like, where did you come up with that? You know, explore the produce aisle and, and then, or Google before you go and say, okay, well, I know I've seen this. How would I make that? 
and mix it up a little bit. So I, I love that. And it has proven to work pretty well in the Volmerick household. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. And again, most people don't realize this, but a fellow by the name of Bruce Ames, who was a scientist, he's at the University of California, Berkeley, he's probably a future Nobel laureate. And he came up with something called the Ames test for carcinogenicity, which is a way of testing for the cancer-causing potential of a particular compound. The way the Ames assay works is it works in bacteria. And you take a bacteria, and if you cause a mutation in the DNA, you render it a bacteria that was normally unable to survive on a tryptophan-deficient diet to one that can survive. And simply by then counting the number of bacterial colonies that you get, you can infer what was the mutagenic potential of the compound that you delivered. And this became a standard assay. But again, you're looking at mutagenesis in a bacteria. Using that assay, Bruce went on to show that about 99% of the carcinogens that we're exposed to every day are compounds naturally produced by plants. And most people, they, they hear that and they're kind of shocked, like, oh my gosh, I'm getting carcinogens when I'm eating plants? Well, of course you are. But you're getting them at very low levels, not the very high levels that you would get with smoking. And the net effect of that is that you're getting these things and you're getting them in combination with these sirtuins to condense or wind up your chromatin. And when your chromatin is wound up, it is more resistant to DNA damage from things like carcinogens. We have now shown, and this, this kind of all hangs together, how these, you know, some of these molecules, which would be, you know, in a bacterial in vitro assay, be labeled as dangerous or carcinogenic, in vivo, in the human physiology, they're actually health-promoting because they're causing this chromatin condensation effect, we believe. And so does that, does that go towards eating the whole food versus eating one... Or, or, or maybe supplements where you get one component or one piece versus, you know, eating the whole fruit or the whole vegetable where you get, you get a whole collection of things. Certainly on a theoretical basis, that would hold together as opposed to, you know, trying to distill food into just, well, I need so much carbohydrate and so much protein and then you know, trying to break down all the micronutrients that you need and putting that together in a, in a shake. I think the bigger impact of diet diversity is on the microbiome, which is maybe not so much about epigenetics and what we're talking about, but we have these huge populations of microbes that live in our gut, and it's a competition, right? They're in competition with one another. And if you eat a very homogeneous diet, you're going to have a very homogeneous microbiome, uh, and I think there's probably, in my mind, negative consequences for the overgrowth of really almost any of those microbes. And so what you really want to do is to level the playing field, if you will, by eating a diverse diet, not letting any one microbial strain within your microbiome start ruling the roost. Does that make sense? Yeah, we don't want a monoculture. We want the, the rainforest, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Within, within your own microbiome. Right, right. Can we talk a little bit about insulin as a hormone? Sure. Insulin is something that your body naturally produces in response to high blood sugar. I think when we talk about blood sugar, we need to talk about time, you know, blood sugar over time. It is perfectly natural and okay to eat a meal. You know, you could eat a banana, you can eat a carrot. Those are both, you know, starchy fruits or vegetables. And you're going to cause insulin 
uh, production. And insulin is a hormone. It is going to go and it's going to bind to the insulin receptor on cells. And then that's going to trigger a cascade of events that a bunch of genes are going to get turned on. I think what we now understand is, is we want that effect to be transitory. So if you, you know, eat a banana and then you go out to ski all day, you know, those genes are going to get activated. You're going to take care of the metabolism you need to, to have activated. And then you're going to, you know, wind that DNA back up. We went through that analogy in the first uh, podcast. Chronic high blood sugar, like we see in, in type 2 diabetes, is clearly associated with accelerated aging because we're unwinding DNA and we're leaving it out to be damaged and we're leaving it out for these methylation patterns to shift. And we really shouldn't be doing that. And we address those things both through meal size, but also through meal timing. So if you've been following the world of intermittent fasting, there was a study uh, was just published, uh, at, I think it was out of Harvard Medical School, uh, where they looked at uh, the positive impact of an 18-hour fast every night. So really trying to go not 12 hours from your last evening meal to your next morning meal, but going 18 hours. And, and they, they, they were able to show some benefits of that. Other hormones, vitamin D. Vitamin D is a steroid. It's a steroid hormone. And it is one that activates a bunch of genes. I think the number is probably around 900 or so. And we know that many of those genes are important for healthy immune function. And so we know that vitamin D deficiency is associated, well, severe vitamin D deficiency is associated with things like rickets, but it's associated with uh, poor immune function and autoimmune diseases and over the long term with osteoporosis, especially in elderly women. I like vitamin D as a topic of this interplay between genetics and epigenetics because vitamin D is something we actually make in our skin. We need about 10 minutes of direct sunshine for our bodies to synthesize vitamin D. We actually synthesize it through a series of metabolic reactions from cholesterol, believe it or not. And you need to have that direct sun. So if you could imagine through the course of human evolution, populations that were living in very low light, right, where it was very either dark or cloudy, right? But if you think of Scandinavian countries in the wintertime, right, it's very dark, right? You don't get a lot of direct sun. And so what happened? Well, evolution came up with fair skin. It came up with blonde hair and blue eyes and a lack of melanin pigmentation, whereas you could look at humans that evolved in equatorial populations, in, for example, Africa, India, you know, much darker skin tones because they needed the melanin to actually absorb the excess ultraviolet light that is coming in. Now, there are some dietary things you can do to enhance vitamin D. Fatty fish, full-fat dairy, reduced consumption of carbonated beverages, those are all actions you can take. But I think for the average person walking around on the street, they have no idea if they're vitamin D deficient. No idea. And so... Again, you could go to the doctor uh, and say, okay, I need to test my blood vitamin D levels, but even that is a single point in time, right? It's just saying, well, how much vitamin D is in your blood right now? With epigenetics, what we're really looking at is, were you chronically vitamin D deprived over the past four to six weeks? Because if we take the example of an African-American woman living in, I don't know, Seattle, well, in the summertime, you know, assuming that she's, you know, reasonably active 
person, she's probably getting out and getting more than enough sunshine to uh, have a healthy levels of vitamin D. Uh, as you and I both know, a lot of salmon in the Pacific Northwest, Jeffrey, and so she may be eating a plenty of fatty fish and full fat dairy, and her vitamin D levels, at least in the summertime, might be great. Well, what about in the wintertime? And so, you know, difficult to determine with, you know, if she just went to her doctor and had a blood test in, you know, in the middle of July, vitamin D levels might look great, but if we had asked that same question in February, that might be different. And so, with epigenetics, we're not only looking for you know, the presence or absence of something, but really what is the longer-term biological impact of that? I think there's a, a great segue there to letting our listeners know that Richard is the president of a new company called Prosper, and they can be found at liveprosperstrong.com. And I do know that listeners are going to have an opportunity to check out Prosper at that website and by entering in the coupon code ATBS, going to be able to get a discount on a direct-to-consumer epigenetic test through a cheek swab, right? Yeah, and we're happy to do it and share that information back with people because for most of us, you know, net of going to the doctor and you know having a full blood workup or a physical, uh, most of us are managing our our health largely through you know the mirror and the bathroom scale. Uh, and I think epigenetics gives us uh, you know a better tool in the toolbox to look at. You know, how well are we aging? Because we could all rationalize a lot of things. And then what's really driving that aging process? You know, we'll have increasingly personalized recommendations about what to do about your nutrition. You know, are you vitamin D deficient? Do you need to, you know, eat more fish? Do you need to eat more plants? And depending on your lifestyle goals, do you, you know, maybe you need to eat more protein. It all depends on, you know, your personal goals and your lifestyle. I would add to what you just said about we're checking the scale and we're looking at in the mirror. I think one of the things that we maybe don't do often enough is check in with how we feel. And you've heard me say it, you know, a hundred times, right? Feeling good feels really good. And yesterday I restricted my caloric intake over 18 hours. So I stopped eating at six o'clock in the evening, the night before, didn't have my next meal till noon yesterday practiced some Qigong in the morning, did some exercise, had an hour and a half of yoga, and I felt fantastic. When we tune into how we feel, and really we're chronically habituated to our lifestyle, and as you and I have talked about many times, like I've over these past bunch of years, I've become very familiar with what it feels like when my body begins to release and produce cortisol versus what it feels like when I'm producing serotonin and tuning into our bodies, right? Feel what it feels like when you eat a nutrient dense diet versus how you feel 30 or 40 minutes after eating a less healthy diet, maybe high in fats and carbohydrates or something. And how does that feel? And I've had that experience as well. And I think we could all do well to tune into self and how do we feel? How does it feel when I eat well? How does it feel when I restrict calories and do some intermittent fasting? If we're tuned in, we can tell. We might not be able to tell vitamin D deficiency, but we can dial in and really fine tune what makes me feel good. And I've also implemented a bit of journaling, which I think is very helpful as well to know, well, geez, I feel really good. And if you've 
kept some track of what you've been doing. Did I get a good night's sleep? Did I get some exercise? What did I eat? And then, you know, in the subsequent 24 hours, how do I feel? Then we start to dial in on, because we're all unique, right? There's only one pilot in the driver's seat of my ship and everything's not going to feel the same for everybody. I think that's a really key piece of the puzzle. I know for me personally is to, oh, how, how do I feel and why do I feel that way? Yeah, it's an interesting point. And yes, we're, we're all unique. For some people, and one of the members of the Prosper Scientific Advisory Board is a, a psychologist at UCLA, Janet Tobiyama, who runs something called the Dish Lab, the Dietary Stress and Health Network. And what Janice has shown is that for some people, diets in and of themselves, are it's, it's a very stressful event for them, right? So the health benefits of the quote-unquote diet are frankly outweighed by the mental stress that, that they're putting themselves through. I view these diets as very faddish, you know, should they be on the, you know, the Miami Beach diet or this diet or that diet or the other thing, but they're forcing themselves into a habit change and they're hammering a square peg into a, a round hole and the resultant stress is unhealthy for them. And so how do we find the balance, right? How do we make it easier for people to lead a more nutrient, uh, what's the term you like to use, a more nutritarian uh, lifestyle? Uh, and and that, that's no easy trick. Um, right. So, you know, we are, we are bombarded uh, in modern American society by a series of you know, food images, expectations. Um, if you watch, you know, television for any length of time and try and, you know, look at the food that's advertised on TV and ask yourself, well, I really shouldn't be eating too much of that, right? It's, it's not always the healthiest stuff that, that gets advertised. Um, if you look at the, you know, portion sizes in the average American uh, restaurant, um, they're in vast excess of, of what you actually need, but, you know, they're in the business of attracting customers. And so, you know, we live in a very difficult uh, environment in a lot of ways to, to, to lead a nutrient uh, life. I try and distill it down. You know, there's a lot of noise out there and, oh my gosh, what should I be eating? And what is it? You know, is this, this is that. And the, you know, the media amplifies this with any, you know, new study that comes out and, you know, they have, they'll have their own interpretation of it. I think there's really three levers. How much we eat and avoiding excess caloric consumption. I think the average American uh, male requires somewhere between 1,800 and 2,000 calories. I think the average American consumes something like 3,500. So we, we, we eat too many calories. Regardless of what they are, we're eating too much. Um, what we eat, and everybody has heard this because this is something that's been a real focus uh, of attention, is you know, we eat too much saturated fat and refined carbohydrates. We'd like to see that uh, shift, you know, much more to plant-based calories, uh, in my mind, number one. And then whole grains, things that take a longer time to digest so that, you know, the, you can think of it as almost like a sustained release of, of sugar uh, uh, as opposed to, you know, the spike that you get from, you know, a refined carbohydrate uh, like rice. Uh, as an example. So how much we eat in terms of calories, what we eat, uh, you know, try to eat more plant-based stuff. The other thing that's very exciting and new is the impact of caloric timing. And you 
gave the example of your own personal journey of, uh, of an 18-hour fast, I think we now also understand that there is an influence between melatonin uh, and uh, an insulin. So calories, a lot of calories that are consumed late at night uh, in the presence of both insulin and melatonin, we're finding uh, that those calories are preferentially shunted to fat storage uh, as opposed to uh, calories that are consumed early in the morning uh, seem to get shunted much more to uh, glycogen production and storage in your muscles, right? You're ready to go hunt and mm-hmm. gather. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think this is something uh, worth asking uh, yourself is, you know, if we, if we look at your epigenetic profile, um, okay, how am I doing on vitamin D might be one example, but where am I in terms of meal timing? Is that showing up epigenetically uh, in that um, I should really be trying to eat my meals earlier, uh, especially the, that, that last evening meal? Um, should that be shifted earlier? As you know, Jeffrey, I, I like to, as one of my, uh, one of my uh, part of my exercise regimen is I like to do a bit of boxing. And uh, I have a, a boxing manager, if you will, a guy that manages my local boxing gym. And he's kind of a, kind of a crusty, curmudgeonly old ex-boxer, <laughs> in, in English, an English fellow. And in my conversations with him about, you know, how do boxers, you know, make weight, right? Because, because unless you're a heavyweight boxer, which you can be any weight you like, you know, if you need to make, you know, middleweight, you need to weigh a, a certain amount. And so, that, but, you know, how do boxers make weight other than exercise? What do they do uh, nutritionally? And rather than focusing on particular foods of eat this or don't eat that, although he certainly said, you know, <laughs> don't drink, uh, stop drinking beer. Um, but his adage was, uh, eat like a king for breakfast, eat like a princess for lunch, and eat like a pauper for dinner. And that is, to me, striking because in contemporary Western society, uh, and certainly American society, most people do the opposite. Right? Breakfast is you know, a bagel and a cup of coffee on the run. Oh my gosh, I got to hurry up and get to work. Let's, let's you know, generate a bunch of cortisol there. Or no breakfast um, at all. Or no breakfast at all. Then lunch. And then really the most calories are consumed in the big evening meal at night, followed by sedentary behavior sit on the couch and watch television. <laughs> so I would, right. Let's, let's, you know, let's try and move away from that to a much lighter evening meal and go for a walk, go for a walk with your spouse. Mm. Um, but eat earlier, go for a walk, turn the TV off, certainly turn off the news. Uh, right. You don't need any, you had plenty of that during the day, right. We all have it at our fingertips. You know, you don't need to, to stress yourself out any, any, any more. Uh, about politics or economy or any of that stuff and try and, and, you know, tie your, your nutrition practices, your meal timing in with your, your practice of mindfulness. Yeah. Perfect. I think that's a, a great segue, Richard, uh, to the next episode or one of the next few episodes, which where we're going to be covering the other aspects, the other the other three of the four pillars where we're going to get into fitness, we're going to get into mindfulness, we're going to get into toxins and, and dig in and root around a little bit, see if we can find some nuggets of information, flip some lights on for some people. Uh, I would like to remind everybody again, Richard Hamilton can be found at 
liveprosperstrong.com. And they're providing uh, direct-to-consumer epigenetic testing and, and use ATBS as your coupon code. You'll get a discount. You know, check them out because I think they're right out on the cutting edge. So uh, we can put those things into use. We can listen to ourselves better. Uh, you know, what I my takeaway, and you and I have had these conversations before, but, you know, a nutritarian diet, I didn't coin the phrase, Joel Furman did, I believe. And, um, you know, eating a nutrient-dense diet, the timing, I love what your boxing guy says, and you've you've talked to me about it before, right? Eat like a king for breakfast, eat like a king, eat like a princess for lunch, and eat like a pauper for dinner. And then be mindful as we as we as the sun goes down and we roll towards sleep, and which we all know is rest and recovery. Not only does it feel good to rest, but our body on a cellular level is is getting a lot of things done when we when we go to sleep. And so, Richard Hamilton, I appreciate your knowledge, your expertise, your friendship, your time, and uh, I look forward to our next episode. Uh, I, I as well, Jeffrey. Great to chat and uh, be well. As always, thank you, my friend. Thank you for listening to our series on epigenetics with guest Richard Hamilton. I know I feel more informed. I hope you do as well. If you like what you're hearing on ATBS, the podcast, you can jump on our website. You can subscribe through Patreon. You can support us a number of different ways. Probably the best way is to spread the word, word of mouth, social media. And I appreciate everything you do. I'll keep doing the best I can and growing and building community and and turning lights on and exploring subjects. So again, thanks for listening. Until next time. Be curious, keep on thriving.